0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're tuned in to the Bible is Lit podcast. We are back with another episode uh, regarding the hero's journey and the narrative arts of heroes in the Bible. Today we're looking at Moses. I've affectionately titled this Moses Hero or Zero. Um, and again, we're tracking the um, hero archetypes or the patterns of the hero's journey in um, different Bible stories in this series. is So Moses is a really, really interesting character if we look at it in terms of a hero's journey because you're having Moses as a hero, arguably as a hero, but according to the text and according to... Various historical documents You're having Moses tell the story Of Moses' own hero's journey So you kind of have to take that With a great grain of salt But however There's a lot of argument about Who really wrote this story So some scholars will believe That Moses himself did write it Others would argue Moses himself did not write it But it was one of Moses' scribes so Moses was more in a sense of narrating things and the scribes were writing it down or it was the scribes after Moses died put all of these things, Moses had them record and then they put it together and that is the Torah as we know it. And then others are like, no, and some of the scholarship brings this out to that a third way of looking at it is there were these people that, rediscovered these old texts, and they were big fans of Moses, so they put these texts together and then created this story with Moses as the central character in the Torah. Either way, any interpretation you want to look at, it's interesting. There are a lot of nuances to it, But at the end of the day, this narrative arc, this hero's journey pattern is still apparent regardless of what you think the origins and the historical well, relevance, the historical factual truth may be. And then that gets into this whole thing about what the ancient Near Eastern cultures regarded as true or false. Remember, science was not a thing. So they didn't consider something to be scientifically verified the standard for what truth was. There was this notion that things could be true. Things could mean multiple things at the same time and still be true. And that goes on through not only just the Bible, but for any ancient Near Eastern literature or mythology or folklore you may read. And that gets into the question like, we argue a lot in the West about whether the Bible is true or not, and that kind of defeats the purpose of the richness of what these stories actually do. It's not a matter of whether it's true or not, but it's a matter of what we consider truth. In the West, we have this tendency to not accept something as true unless it can be scientifically verified and measured When the ancients are writing these tales, that is not even a framework that they have. So when you read these stories, that's something you have to take with a grain of salt. It can be true, but it doesn't necessarily have to be scientifically verified because that wasn't even a thing. And then also this notion of two things that are opposites, two things that seem opposed can actually be true at the same time. And a lot of the stories we read throughout the Bible, especially Moses' history and narrative arc, plays with this idea that two opposing things can actually both be true at the same time. And it is up to us as the reader, or it is up to us to rely on God in the space between those two things to determine what the wisdom is, what the meaning is is. So that's a little bit of background of when we are considering Moses as a character in this story. Is Moses the author of his own story, literally? Was it some scribes he was telling to write things down? Or was it a bunch of people that came later and said, we need to record this history of Moses, really cool guy, let's make him the central character of the history of these people. You know, but in Genesis starts with it sets the stage for Moses to come in and Exodus and then the rest of the Torah, which would be Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, more or less is the story of Moses from his birth to his death. And then in the backdrop is Moses wrestling with this nation that he is leading known as Israel, their children of Israel. But Genesis establishes that pattern. And so what you got to understand also to kind of tie this all together is that the Torah is something in literary terms known as a chiasm. So what that means is we have five parts and they're all mirrors of each other. So chiasm in literature means that you have polarities, but the polarities, right, they're mirror stories. Of each other, so what we have going on, and'll hopefully this makes sense as I explain it, is Genesis and Deuteronomy are mirrors of each other. they pattern each other. so Genesis, you have the establishment of these people and the origin story of the world and the origin story of right the three followers of the faith are considered the fathers of the faith of Israel, which is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we get the origin of earth, we get Abraham, we get Isaac, we get Jacob. And then through Jacob, this nation Israel comes to be. And in, in Deuteronomy, it is Israel having arrived in the promised land, now establishing themselves. So we have the establishment of the earth and the establishment of the lineage in Genesis. And then we mirror that in Deuteronomy with the establishment of the nation in the land that God has given them. And then in both instances, you get in Genesis, you get God talking to these fathers. In the instance of Deuteronomy, it is Moses speaking from God to the people of Israel and establishing a nation. So then in Exodus And Numbers also are mirrors of each other. So in Exodus, they're both journeys. So Exodus is the children of Israel leaving Egypt and going out looking for the promised land and being in the wilderness. Okay. Numbers is the journey out of the wilderness and into the promised land. Mirrors. So they're both these stories of the children of Israel traveling one is them leaving Egypt. One is them going into the promised land. And then right sandwich in the middle is Leviticus. And basically Leviticus is conversations between God and Moses and the things God has told Moses to tell the children of Israel. Like, here's how you survive in the wilderness, do these things. And then Deuteronomy has a hint of that. But it's Moses telling them, okay, these things that you did in the wilderness, you still want to continue to do while you have established yourself in this land. And some of these things you may do a little bit differently. But again, sta- establishing them as the people, which connects us back to the establishment of them as a nation in Genesis. So that's how that works. But let's get into Moses's arc, Moses' narrative arc. So we want to look at, you know, He's born kind of at the the in this period where Israel due to famine, you know so several generations after Jacob, Israel keeps getting bigger and more powerful. We see that you know um Joseph becomes high and mighty um a counselor of these early Egyptian kingdoms, which is the youngest son of Jacob. And this is how the children of Israel actually end up in Egypt, because there's a famine. They travel over. They get established through Joseph, but they keep getting more and more plentiful to the point where they don't have a good Pharaoh. The deal between Pharaoh and Joseph and the people of Israel at that point is off, and the Egyptian Pharaohs start taking them captive and hold them as um, debt slaves basically the entire nation is what happens. And so, but there's this prophecy that someone's going to rise up over them and take over. And then they're just worried. Like y'all keep, like we keep putting a we're hard taskmasters. We keep putting hard things upon y'all, but y'all still just keep having more and more babies, you are more and more fruitful, and it goes back into that be fruitful and multiply thing from Genesis 1, and so Pharaoh issues an edict that all baby boys, um, will be killed, they need to be cast into the Nile River, uh, at first he's like, the midwives need to take care of it, but even then, like, um, The Egyptian, I guess the Egyptian birth and what was happening with the Egyptians, the Egyptians weren't having successful births without the midwives. And then they come back and the midwives saying, why are all these baby boys still being born? I thought I told you to when they are born, the midwives need to kill them. And they come back and say, like, these Israel, these Israeli women aren't like the Egyptian women, being that they're having babies that are perfectly healthy and thriving without a midwife. And so then... Pharaoh comes back later and is like, throw them all in the river then. If a midwife isn't there to kill the baby boy, you are to throw the baby boy into the Nile River. And so this is what happens. Moses is born during this time period. He is technically thrown into the Nile River, but his mother puts him in a wicker basket. You ought to see the symbolism behind this. Who else was placed in a sort of basket on his birth, escaping a genocide? Ah, Jesus. So now you see this is a hyperlink. This is a literary pattern and a tradition that is established. And so Moses is put in this wicker basket. He's floating. And then he is found by the daughter of Pharaoh. She takes him in and takes care of him. And then there's this interesting thing that happens where they're like, I need a midwife. I need someone like I can't feed him. I can't nurse him. And so she finds, um, a, someone who can feed him, and it just so happens to be his own biological mother. So he ends up being raised in a household with his own biological mother, yet she doesn't get to take the role of the biological mother in title, even though she is. He She nurses him, and he grows up now Um, So he starts, you know, being born in a genocide. So it's this, um, he's in this ordinary world. He's actually supposed to be, he should be killed, but instead through a little bit of deception and other things going on behind the scenes, he ends up being raised as royalty. But because he's being You know, although he is a son of the house of Pharaoh, his mother, his biological mother and his sister who are in the household with him working as slaves, they have taught him about his history. You know, so we have this ordinary world type of thing going on, but then he rises above the status of this ordinary world. And he is this guy who's able to walk in both worlds, both as a Hebrew, as a child of Israel, but also as a son of the house of Pharaoh and He knows his history as a Hebrew, so he he sees one of Pharaoh's people treating one of the Hebrew people badly. His anger gets the best of him. He ends up killing this dude. Again, another pattern. Anger rises up. Moses kills the dude. So you see Moses almost reliving the narrative arc of Cain here. And then this pattern gets reestablished and reemerged when um, Moses is giving the ordinances for the children of Israel about having refuge cities for murderers, right? This is something that gets reestablished because what ends up happening is Moses kills this dude um, and they realize it was kind of, it was in a fit of anger, but it was, it was, motivated because of his heritage, and so he actually ends up being exiled and lives in exile for a long time, something like 40 years to that. So Moses speaking this to the children of Israel later, both one, coming from the mouth of God and speaking it to them face to face, but two, he has benefited from being in exile and living in a city of refuge himself, And so he goes out into exile, right, in the wilderness. He has to live amongst another group of people and trust in the Lord. And in this space, we see supernatural elements. And this is where, so this is the background of Moses. But then, right, what happens is we have his call to adventure happens in a supernatural way. It's the burning bush, and there's a lot of different theories and things you can go into about what was the burning bush? Was he, you know, there's this whole thought of like they were smoke, they would smoke the leaves of the acacia tree and all that. Regardless of the fact, there's a supernatural event which lines up with all of these things that happen and are common in Hero's Journey archetypes or the monomyth as it is called, um, according to Joseph Campbell. So this monomyth idea that connects us to this hero's narrative arc. We have the supernatural element of God speaking to Moses in a way that isn't necessarily possible. And then Moses answers this call to adventure. The call to adventure is go back to Egypt where you have been exiled and talk to Pharaoh and tell him to right. Make right the wrong that you did. You killed one of them. You killed one of them because you were angry. That anger, it was a righteous anger, but you allowed the anger to cause an action that was not holy and not righteous. Again, just like Cain and Abel. Cain is okay. Cain is right to be angry about what God tells him. God tells Cain like, hey, sin's on your doorstep, but you need to rule over it. You need to master it. And so there's this invitation for Cain to rely on God and master that emotion and then go be reconciled to his brother. Cain does not do that. He murders his brother. Then he lives in exile. God gives him this edict saying, hey, go wander and rely on me for your sustenance. And instead, Cain goes and builds a city. So there's this very similar circumstance happening with Moses. In a sense, you could say Moses is Cain and he's living out Cain's journey. But now he's actually answering the call that Cain did not answer So he's going back and he's going to make amends with Pharaoh, try to repair this relationship. But part of that task is going to be, bro, let my people go. Let my brothers and my sisters go. We used to be friends. Y'all provided for us and then y'all manipulated the vulnerability of this people due to a famine. And now we have ended up being your slaves. And so this is Moses going back back now to Egypt and more supernatural stuff begins to happen. Um, I didn't cover this at the beginning, but places to look and little threads were pulling, you know, Moses's origin, looking at Exodus one through about chapter two, verse 15. We go a little further at chapter three, verses one through 12. Uh, right now, um, we're looking at more supernatural elements, right? So we have some tests going on as Moses re-emerges to Egypt. There's like this battle of the priests going on. So Moses and his brother Aaron, they're going, you know, and so now we're looking at 7, 1 through 13 in Exodus. And God basically is telling them like, hey, like when you throw your staff out, it will turn into a serpent, and he's like, and then when you show your, when you show your hand beneath your cloak, it will look like a skeleton's hand or it'll look leprous. Okay. And so it's basically like Moses and Aaron show up and Pharaoh's like, oh, well, well okay. Like if you can prove that you're more powerful, um, your God's more powerful than our God's Then I'll let your people go. So they have like this battle of his magicians and Pharaoh's priests going against Moses and Aaron. So they throw the staff on the ground. The staff becomes a snake. Well, their priests and magicians are able to do this same magic trick. So, again, connecting to this archetype of like, we, we have some tests going on right now. It's not the ultimate test, but it's part of the kind of initiation process. He's answered the call to adventure. He's going through this initiation now um, and confronting Pharaoh and his priests. He has an ally now. It's his brother, Aaron who ends up becoming the first generation of priests later on in the Moses story, in the narrative of the history of the people of Israel. Um, So they throw the staffs on the ground anyway. All the other staffs of the Egyptian um, magicians become serpents as well. But then something really, really interesting happens. They're like, okay, like we can do that too. And then the staff of Aaron... Becomes a bigger snake and eats all of the other snakes, and so that's proving ground number one. And Pharaoh's like, "That ain't nothing. Like that, you can't prove to me that your God's better than our God. I am not letting your people go." And so then Moses is like, "Dude, it's going to be bad for you. Um, God's going to start raining all these plagues down on you." And then in chapter eight, the plagues continue. And they get worse, progressively worse, progressively worse. And then it builds up to this monumental part in chapter 14. And every time Pharaoh says, I'm going to let you, I'll let your people go now. I'll let your people go now. And then he goes back on his word. Now, this is something very interesting. This is something where Moses in my book redeems the test that Cain was not able to pass in this sense, meaning that Cain was protected and preserved, but he didn't do what God asked him to do in terms of wandering. Instead, he went out and built a city where we see Moses. So he goes back on his word to God and relies on his own protection. What we see here is that Moses does exactly what he says he's going to do Regardless of the effect, and Moses speaks as the oracles of God, right, relying on God for his sustenance, where we see Pharaoh, Pharaoh begins to mirror this aspect where the same thing like Cain did, where he says one thing and does another. Okay, I promise I'm going to let your people go. Then he goes back on his word. Then what happens? Another plague comes. And this happens, and it keeps continuing until the death of the firstborn, the Passover night, if you will. And that's the last straw for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, okay, I'll let your people go. He lets the people go, but he is so enraged by the death of the firstborn that... As Israel is leaving and going out, they're not even asking for anything at this point with Moses as their leader. They're leaving. They're going out of Egypt and saying like, basically like, hey, bro, like just just let us go out. Uh, We're not even asking for anything. We're just going to go and we'll take care of ourselves. Y'all can't provide for us anyway. It's taking a ton of resources for y'all to do that. And then on the tail end of it, Pharaoh sends his armies out to say, Hey, once they go, flank them and then slaughter them. And this is where another supernatural element, but it is in the terms of the whole Moses story, this would be our crossing of the threshold in the hero's journey, literally crossing the Red Sea. So the steed stands up, they cross over on dry ground. They're able to cross the threshold because they are relying on God. The Pharaoh Egyptian army is not able to cross the threshold because they're relying on their own strength, their own intellect, their own force to cross that threshold. The sea swallows them up and now Moses and Israel are wandering throughout the wilderness so they've crossed the threshold. Now the true ordeal begins and this is Moses being able to lead these people, right? Moses has taken the place of Pharaoh in this sense. So he's replaced Pharaoh. He is now the leader and but instead of relying on all these strange gods and force and political systems and military power. He speaks with God face to face. There comes this point where the people are like, we don't want to see God face to face. Moses talked to God for us. So Moses becomes the intermediary in this sense, a priest and a king over Israel. And again, you'll notice that pattern is that goes throughout the Old and the New Testament, this idea of a priest and a king, just as Jesus is described. A royal priesthood, if you will. But they trade their ability to speak with God face to face and say, Moses, you do it because God freaks us out too much. And Moses becomes the intermediary between the people and God as he is leading them, and these are where the tests Happen. The true ordeal is Moses leading these people through the wilderness in order for them to arrive at the land that was promised to Abraham way back in the day, completing that covenant and completing that cycle. We do see, again, more supernatural elements as these people are wandering throughout the desert, and there's a lot of nuances that you can take a lot of sermons that can be preached, and a whole lot of different literary patterns and techniques that we can pull out of that story. Again, we are just looking at the hero's journey patterns in the Moses story. But we have all these instances, all these different tests that happen as Moses is leading those people. For him, the big test is when he strikes the rock it Mount Oreb and water comes from it. You know, that is one of the things that says is the reason why he dies outside of the promised land at the end of Moses's life. But there's other elements to it. And so Moses leads Israel to the promised land. They're going to, to cross another threshold. So this time Moses is not crossing the threshold himself, but this entire nation now is crossing another threshold. Um, And this is where the narrative is different, you know, in terms of a traditional hero's journey narrative. In a sense, you know, Moses, like typically in your typical hero's journey, you would have this return home. But since they are exiles, since they are wondering, Moses as a singular exile earlier comes back to where he was exiled from and pulls his people out. Now they are wondering, they are in exile until they cross the threshold into the promised land. So it's almost like Moses as the exile comes back, grabs his people who then become exiles in order to lead them through this transitional period in their history. And then he dies on a mountain top, and there's a lot of symbolism between his death. You know, one way to look at it is he doesn't know how to operate in the sense of being a normal dude in establishing and living in a homeland, because really, he's been a dude without a home. He lived, he was enslaved. He came out of an enslaved place. He was able to, through his situations regarding his birth. He becomes a member of the royal household, but because that's not his blood, again, ends up killing somebody. He lives in exile. He comes back. He brings his people out. They continue to live in exile until they reach the promised land. And then God's like, nope, you're going to sit up here on top of this mountain. You're going to look out into the land which I have given your people, but you are not going to go forth. Part of the symbolism behind that is he is not cut out and he is not designed for that. He is the guy for the job in terms of leading them through exile because he has been in exile himself, but he symbolically does not know how to exist in a way where he is not an exile. So there's part of that going on. There's this other symbolic representation, and this is a theme throughout the whole Bible. He dies on the mountaintop, right? But the mountaintops, that would signify that he is close to God. In a sense, it is like he returns home, right? But the home he returns to is this spiritual home, i.e. heaven, which is what the mountains and the heights would have represent. The mountain or the mountain of God, in this case, being close to heaven or reaching up into the heavenlies, ascending in the evolution of the human consciousness versus this is why the Tower of Babel was such a controversy because it was reaching into the heavens, but it was a man reaching into the heavens himself. Not creation, that thing which God had borne forth, reaching up into the heavens. And so that's the difference between like a tower in a city versus a mountain. Mountain ascending up into the heavens versus a tower, something man built is. um. So there's the divine blueprint of that ascension. And then there's man's attempt to ascend. One brings you closer to God and brings you back home. The other puts you further, further away from God and then devolves into chaos and violence. So in a sense, Moses dying on top of the mountain is bringing him back to his spiritual home and then we see this play out again in the narrative of Jesus after he is crucified, right buried, resurrected, when he disappears from the um when he disappears from the disciples the last time it says he <laughs> ascends in a cloud and goes up into the heavens again like Moses dying on a mountaintop Or as Enoch, several generations earlier back in Genesis, is described as leaving the earth. We also see this pattern established with the prophet Elijah. So, all that being said, that is a down and dirty look at Moses as a hero archetype, living out this monomyth of the hero's journey in the biblical story.